and it just felt like someone had taken a huge shard of glass or a knife and just stabbed it into my foot, into both feet. Um, and it was, uh, even to this day, I remember the pain vividly because that pain didn't subside for seven years. Hey guys, Mark Warman here, and you're listening to Cut From A Different Cloth, a podcast where I talk to inspiring people who are carving out their own paths so that we can learn and be inspired ourselves. I'm the founder of Barnfield Customs. We produce jackets influenced by military uniform and heritage workwear, and underpinning all of that, we're inspired by motorcycle culture, especially the kind of intersection of builders, makers, designers, and creatives. And that's the common thread. Everyone I speak to is connected to that community. Whether they're building their own bikes or their work and life has been inspired by them in some way, shape or form. And this is our very first episode and I'm with Connor O'Donnell, aka the British motorbiker. When he was just 12, Connor's life was completely upended when he woke up with searing pain in both his feet. Seemingly from out of nowhere, he developed a condition known as neuropathy. Defined as damage to the nerves outside of the brain and spinal column, so your legs and arms, feet, hands and so on, Connor went from living a normal childhood to facing years of agony, watching as it affected the muscles in his legs to the point that he could barely walk. All of this whilst it went undiagnosed. Six years after it first started, he was finally diagnosed and whilst his friends were making plans for their gap year, Connor started the first of four surgeries to help restructure his legs. Although he's still affected on a day-to-day -day basis, having found the world of motorbikes, a world that gave him his independence back, he's now pursuing a career in content creation. But before we get into that, I asked Connor to take us right back to the beginning and to set the scene for us. So I grew up in Bromley. Uh, so for those of you who don't know Bromley, it's about 14 miles south of central London and lived there all my life. And in terms of where I went to school, a place called Dulwich College. So I'd get the train into school every day with my brother walk down to the station, Shortlands is where we lived, hop on the train, go into there. And um, Dulwich is a beautiful school, it's an all boys school. It dates back to the 1600s, um, where it was started off as just a small little eight person college, actually in the centre of Dulwich village and then it expanded, expanded. Now it has around 1500 pupils. So that's from year three all the way to year 13. So I did my entire time at Dulwich. And then from there, I went to study at the University of Sussex, um, where I did engineering. So I'm the first in my family to explore that industry because my parents are lawyers. And is that is engineering something that you can trace back to when you were growing up? Absolutely. Yeah. From the moment, well, pretty much first memories. Yeah. I'll be taking things apart, rebuilding things, whether it be out in the garden, whether it be with little toys when I was a kid. And that evolved from, you know, Lego through to Connect, through to Meccano to just literally taking apart lawnmower engines and seeing how they work. And if they're just broken bits of things discarded somewhere, just look at how they work and try and understand what their function is in an engine or in a unit, whatever it was. So I always evolved and always enjoyed that. And different to my brother, I'd always watch my dad work. So if there was ever a task that needed to be done in the house or in the garden or on the car, I would always want to get involved, trying to help my dad out, passing him the tools, learning about it. And I think that just all from there was nurtured, nurtured, nurtured until I got to my GCSE, my A-level part at Dulwich and decided to do design technology along with maths and physics. So it all started to paint that picture and paint the journey for what I wanted to do. So from a young age, I always wanted to go down that engineering route. And then, yeah, I actually started it. So the first year at Sussex was mechanical engineering. Um, and I was thinking, is this actually the side of it I want to do? Or 
the door do more of the design aspect rather than actually the tinkering. And so I did, I changed over into the product design side of engineering and graduated with that. And sort of, it's funny how now things are changing um, because that original side, the, the tinkering, the taking things apart has started to reconnect and sort of my inner child is going that I missed that. So actually now starting to explore that again in the world of motorbikes. So it's nice how it's sort of gone around full circle. So what's keeping you busy right now? So very nearly finished building girlfriend's bike. So Julie, my girlfriend, has just learned to ride. She's got her full license now. So I've just finished building or nearly built a Yamaha YBR 125. And this was a bike which had been sitting dormant for goodness knows how many years, complete wreck, which I was able to take ownership of and just stripped it apart and, and tried to make it my own and, and, and make it this unique piece of engineering. Um, and I did need help along the way. So Julie's dad helped me, my dad helped me, people on Instagram, people on social media, whenever I was getting stuck, I just put out a little story here or there asking a few questions. And it's amazing to see how, what this bike has become. So, you know, to actually say I've, I've taken this apart and built it has been, has been pretty incredible and has definitely reconnected me with why I wanted to do all of that in the first place and why I did design technology at school and why I did these certain bits and pieces throughout from, um, you know, uni as well. It's nice to, re to be revisiting that. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, I've, I've found the same thing, especially with Instagram and how willing to help people are. And like, I almost feel like my projects are, are bigger than me and they're, they're, they're really their community builds. Mm. Mm. I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I suppose there are bits and pieces where I think back to it and think I would never be able to do this had that one person not got back to it. I would have spent hours going through a forum trying to find the right answer. And just so happened that one person had the exact same problem and to experience it before and they were able to help me there and then. And it's kind of like anything. It would be nice to one point when the bike is properly roadworthy and it's been MOT'd and Julie's insured to maybe take it somewhere and for people to see it and be like, oh, this, this is the bike that, you know, Connor spent a good year and a half during the pandemic trying to build with months on, months off. So it's nice, to, yeah, it would be nice to be able to show the finished article to everyone and then to actually be like, I kind of helped build this bit. I remember helping telling you about that bit there. So absolutely, I can see that community coming together. Yeah, and I think it's been, what, 18 months of not having people around us. So any opportunity we can take, you know, it's, it's worth grabbing onto. But that was that was a lockdown build, right? It was, it was. Um, everything had started. So I used to live in Battersea, and that's where this bike was sitting dormant for goodness knows how long with a big, big layer of dust on it. It was completely caked. And I was able to then get that bike in the back of a van, it all been approved by DVLA and police and whatnot, it hadn't been reported stolen. Got it back home into my garage and that's just when it all began. I had no idea what I wanted to build, I had no plan. All my training, all my education of engineering had gone out the window of actually planning it all and being um, you know, delicate and, and detailed about it. Literally just stripped the whole thing apart. Didn't even know if it ran. It didn't, you know, the fuel in it was goodness knows how, or how old. And just, just started tinkering away. And as I'll go along, this picture in my mind just started to develop and develop. And I was like, that, no, that doesn't look right. This is how I want that to be. That's too long, that's too short. I want to curve that here. And with the tools I had, which wasn't many, um, and def definitely no, in no way professional means, I was able to, to build what is something I'm very, very happy about and puts a huge smile on my face. And Julie, when she, she sort of takes it just around the, the little gravel bit outside, yeah, even she's loving it so far. So I can't wait to actually see her properly on it, uh, enjoying it, fast riding together. 
And just shifting gears slightly, before we started chatting, I, like most people, I, I read your bio and I saw that you're recovering from neuropathy and, and reconstructive surgery. And I assumed that all of that was as a result of an accident. But that's not right, is it? No, no. And, that, and that's what most people do assume. When, look, first of all, many people don't even know what neuropathy is. So they do therefore think, oh, it could be something to do with having come off a bike or injuring yourself on the bike. Um, but no, the two are very, very far apart and the bike came after the neuropathy. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a perfectly healthy young boy, um, played rugby, played sports, incredibly fast, you know, thought I even saw myself doing a future in rugby or in athletics. I was that kind of speed. Um, and then literally one day woke up in the morning and I was in agony. My mum came running into the bedroom. I was screaming my head off and I was around 13 at the time, 12, 13. And it just felt like someone had taken a huge shard of glass or a knife and just stabbed it into my foot, into both feet. Um, and it was, I, even to this day, I remember the pain vividly because that pain didn't subside for seven years. So from that age onwards, it was just nonstop agony pretty much. And I learned to deal with it. I learned to cope with it, a lot of coping mechanisms. Singing, one of them, is one of those ways that I was around it. But um, yeah, I just had to get on with my life. No one knows where it came from or how it came about, if it was a mechanical injury, because I never broke my leg or broke my feet or did anything. It literally just started up one day. And after seeing, oh my goodness, countless, countless, countless professionals, eventually met with a chap when I was 18. And he said, this is neuropathy, which is inflammation of the nerves. So literally the nerves themselves become inflamed and, and, and damaged, but anything can cause it. It's a very weird stimulus. Um, and he said, the only way you can treat this is with surgery. We can't actually do anything for the pain. It will hopefully subside and burn itself out. And thank goodness it did. But it left a lot of scarring in the sense that I couldn't walk properly. My whole gait deformed. My whole potential future of playing rugby, sprinting went out the window pretty much instantaneously because I struggled to put one foot in front of the other. The gait, as I mentioned, changed. And in doing so, because of muscle wastage, you name it, my legs started to deform in how they look. And if you looked at me, there was most notably a deformity. I, I walked on the side of my feet. So rather than being heel toe, heel toe, flat footed, I sort of curled around from the, the heel all the way to the sort of the, um, or the, I suppose the ball of the foot, uh, just by the, by the toes, I'd curl around on the outside. And so those deformities meant my bones, my muscles weren't being used correctly. There was an imbalance there. And pretty much, yeah, I just had to, I, I, I was taught a whole new way of walking. I had to use something called an AFO, which is an ankle foot orthotic. They're big, horrendous, chunky bits of plastic, which are made, molded to your feet to help you on walk. They in themselves, you're walking on solid plastic. So that in turn brings ulcers and, and, and pain. It was definitely a, a, an interesting one that all my friends would still be running and still be playing sport. Their academia wouldn't be affected in the slightest, whereas... Pretty much me. I'd be in hospital every other every other week, trying to figure out what was going wrong. So yes, I did start to struggle with my my, my sort of studies. Yeah, and what I didn't realise was that it was a number of years before you actually got diagnosed, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, for all that time, multiple multiple different diagnoses. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. It looks like this. It looks like it could be this. Um, none of which were correct. So every time I'd just go with it and go with it and do the treatment, and nothing would work. And if anything, it'd be getting worse. I'd be in constant pain. 
And it, it was just the deformity. It was the fact that my feet changed shape. They weren't what I used to be. That even if I wanted to try and run for the bus, I physically couldn't. If I wanted to try and do these things. And the most difficulty I had with it is, is how dependent I became on others. And I think that's something I still am trying to counter today. The fact that I did have to rely on my parents driving me everywhere or rely on people to, to give me lifts because I couldn't drive myself. Um, or the fact that I just couldn't get from A to B as quickly as other people. So even getting from class, there was a five minute gap between class at Dulwich, but I would need longer than that, or I'd need all my lessons to be pretty much in one room because I wouldn't be able to get up and down the stairs. It, it, was, you know, it, was, it was this bad. And a lot of people, when I think they think back, they go, you weren't that bad, surely not. I don't remember it. And it's like, because I hid it, um, you know, stiff upper lip, young gentleman, that kind of thing. That's the way Dulwich raised you to be. You hide it, you don't, you don't showcase these things and show off about it. You, you just get on with it. And that's what has always been the way I'd been brought up as well by my family. You just, you just steal these things, you, you, you get on with life. So I could have been in the worst possible pain imaginable. And a lot of the time I was, and I'd be at the back of the classroom or something, literally wanting to cry my eyes out. And I physically wouldn't let myself because I didn't want to show weakness in front of my friends or my teachers and, and all of that. So a lot of those traits came through and have made me who I am today. So there was a lot of, um, a lot of bad things that I did to myself mentally. I did have my ways of uh, escaping. So I used to sing as well. Um, and I, I actually joined a choir called Libera and toured the world with them and did those things. And even those, we did concerts in front of thousands, tens of thousands of people. Um, and we'd wear special clothes made for us and stuff. And even the footwear would become difficult. So I'd be walking along and even walking onto the stage, I'd realize my gait would be wrong. And I'd just be so embarrassed and thinking, no one knows what you're going through. People are probably judging, why is this guy walking like that? Why is he walking on the side of his feet? Why is he stomping? Like sort of, those are the kind of things that are most difficult to, to come to terms with and to think, don't think about that or everyone. And I would get into a habit of just be walking along and think someone would be staring at my feet. And I became quite violent, not like attacking people, but I'd be like, why are you staring at my feet? Like, just, just stop staring at my feet. Like, I've got problems as it is. I don't need you to just stare at them. And that was something that I had horrendous issues with. And which, you know, I think back and it makes me very upset as to, you know, how, how aggressive I'd get. It's just because people generally would be like, what was wrong with your feet? But they didn't mean it in a malicious way. But I've been through so much pain in my life already that I just thought I can't have any more people just drawing attention to it. I imagine that as a young man, I mean, that must have been incredibly frightening to have your life impacted like that and to, to see your gait change and, and to be in that level of pain. And But what I didn't realize was that there was such a long gap between it starting and you finally getting a diagnosis. And of course, something like that's going to change you. But do you think you've learned what you can or are you still struggling with some of those demons? I definitely think there are there are demons there which I still need to tackle and, and remove. And, you know, I, I'm all for going for therapy and, and talking to people and trying to actually really diagnose what, what may be holding you back in life. And I, I still feel, I mean, 29 now, and there are definitely things. So this started over half my life. I've been having this for over half my life. And I, there are definitely things I don't think I feel I ever came to terms with, sort of like, why me? Why does this have to happen? Why does everyone else just get to, to carry on uh, and, and, and be fine? But... Um, it, yeah, it, it most definitely did change me, but I feel right now as a person, it, it's given me that mindset. There's, there's always it could be worse. You know, there are always things that that you, you don't know what someone's going through. And when I am talking to someone, if I am engaging with something, 
it's very, very easy to put a smile on and pretend that everything's okay on the surface when deep down it could be a lot, a lot, lot worse. And you know, that's a whole thing about mental health, anxiety, depression, goodness knows it could even lead to suicide, all that kind of stuff. I get why people go down those those ruts and fall into those ruts and why it can become so bad. Because I myself, I never got to that state where I was, I was depressed and suicidal, thank goodness. But I did think, am I going to have to put up this for the rest of my life? Am I never going to be able to walk properly? If I have children one day, am I ever going to be able to play rugby with them and throw a ball around with them and go running and teach them how to do these things? And I'd be having those thoughts when I was a teenager. Um, and that is those kind of things which start to actually eat at you and make you think you need to get better. You need to overcome this. You need to find a way around this. But you can't be an invalid. You can't be helpless and, and dependent on everyone else for the rest of your life. You're, you've gone from this young, active boy to you cannot do anything. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it was difficult. Um, and I would say there are definitely things which I still need to address and probably should actually be going to talk to someone about um, to, to, get, to get by. But, yeah, it, it, it was definitely hard work on my family as well, though. So I can imagine your, my, my mum seeing me like this perfectly young boy becoming this, this, not disfigured, but just not being able to walk and do A to B. It was difficult for my dad, my brother and sister. They were very supportive, but again, I don't think they ever really understood how bad it was. Um, they may have done. We've never really sat down as a family and spoken about it, which is to, to think back over it. We've never really had that opportunity, but it's something I've been I've been battling all this time and was always scared of. Even sort of getting a girlfriend, you know, it, it, it changed me in the sense of I went from a very extroverted young man to a, an introverted. I don't want to go out because I'm scared people are going to look at my feet. Um, I'm scared I'm going to get bullied. I'm scared someone's going to take take the mick out of me because of the way I walk. So that it, it affected me, and I, you know, would stay in most times and just be a bit of a gamer and be in my own little world. Um, and then uni, thankfully, I had these operations, I had these surgeries. Things started to change. The pain wasn't there, and I was able to sort of the the the, the embers that were left of who I was originally. I was able to to catch them and try and turn it around and become who I am today. Um, so I try and remain positive about these things and yeah, I'm always happy to talk about it. And so the surgeries that you went through, mm. were they to reduce the pain or were they to get you moving again? The latter, yeah. So because of the deformity, my bones had literally changed shape. Um, my, they were pointing, my, my heel was kind of completely reshifted itself to the wrong, to not sit directly under my foot. It moved itself to one side. The tendons just weren't doing their job. They were weak and just not actually engaging. So I can't remember how long the operations would take. The surgery would take about four four hours, I think, five hours that I was under. Um, and it would literally, as the surgeon put it, it's carpentry. We're cutting the bone here and we're then fixing it here with a, with a, with a titanium plate. And we're bolting this bit here and we're bolting this bit here and we're cutting the tendon here and wrapping it around and putting it on a different fixing point to try and shift your foot back to be a tripod rather than sort of a bipod as it was then, because I was walking on just two parts of the foot rather than putting all my weight through the, 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 the center. So proper carpentry, and I love the way they say carpentry, it's quite funny. Um, so I can imagine actually there properly with all the tools as I'm asleep, um, just, just cutting away and, and doing these bits. And they start on the right foot and had that, they had to, it took about six months to recover and then had, went in for the left leg. The left leg was immediate success and is my stronger of the two legs right now. My right leg still gives me a lot of problems, unfortunately. 
So I had to have the surgeries a couple of times. Um, and then there was complication of the titanium and they were worried about that. So I had to go under again to have the titanium removed once everything had set. So it just sort of was never ending, sort of just this, what's going on? Why, why is it never just a simple solution? Just this fixes this and then I can be on with my life. It was always, oh, this is now and then there's another complication, another complication. But thankfully, as they predicted, it did burn itself out. The body did whatever it did. And, and, and one day I woke up and I wasn't in pain anymore. And I instead just had these this sort of mental and physical scarring. And it's something I still do now. So I still see specialists every now and then to try and help. And I still do bits and pieces myself, but my feet are still deformed. There's still a hell of a lot of scarring on there. Um, I can't move my ankles really past a few rain, few degrees of motion. They're pretty much locked in place. And it, it was going to get to the point that if the operations hadn't worked, they were actually going to fuse my feet. So I would have been like a Lego man just walking around, which again, when they, when they said that to me, I just broke down in tears in front of everyone. Like, I cannot be this person. I will not be this person. Um, I will make this work one way or the other. So yeah, just, just had to push through. So it's, it's given me that mentality to just keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. And you know, now I do go for jogs with my girlfriend. I, I, I do a lot more. I ride a bike. I can drive a car. I can, I can do a lot more than probably what most people can do because I've been determined to, to, to get to that and not let these stupid injuries stop me from being who I want to be. Uh, but I'm guessing that at, that at one point, especially with the damage to your ankles, you couldn't drive a car, could you? No, yeah, no. So yeah, everyone, was it 17? Yeah, 17 years old. So lower sixth form, sort of becoming a man, hitting, hitting, all, those, hitting all those bits and pieces. And uh, everyone else is learning to drive. Now everyone's still getting the train into school and being dependent on that. And I, yeah, I, I didn't mind getting the train, but I just wanted to be able to do so much more. And then even at university, people had their cars and would be doing bits. And I just, again, was still either getting a train to and from Sussex or my, my parents would come to pick me up with bits and pieces. And it's kind of like, I feel like I should be doing this myself. This is, it, it's one of those checkpoints in life that you that you achieve. And I'm just not able to do any of this. So it definitely felt like my teenage years were then relived later on in life. Um, I sort of did everything later than everyone. But yeah, the, the, the whole wanting to drive manual, because I grew up being a bit of a petrol head. Um, just cars, films, you know, any Formula One, you name it, any sports. I was just obsessed with it. I was obsessed with, obsessed with power and the, the combustion engine and just what it can do. Um, thrust, all of that, so, you know, land speed records, you name it. And so when the time came to me wanting to actually learn to drive, I was adamant on learning in manual and just could not do it because I couldn't move my ankles, I couldn't move my legs properly, I didn't have the strength to push down. I literally don't, didn't have the strength to push a pedal down, which is just ridiculous because <laughs> how many pounds of pressure does it take to move a pedal? Um, so, and then I was thinking automatic, but even then, just with the right foot, the right foot was still really bad, so I couldn't even do auto. So yeah, it all just went out the window. Um, and I, again, I felt very, very defeated and deflated and just, this is really starting to get on my nerves now. I've been suffering this for five, six years at that point. Now I can't even drive. Like what, what other horrors do I have ahead of me? So yeah, it, it wasn't pleasant. And I don't think anyone who hasn't gone through something similar would be able to even imagine what that was like. But at some point along the line, you got into bikes. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So. Biking had always been a forbidden thing for me. It was a very taboo subject, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, in the O'Donnell household, no one had ever ridden a bike. No one had ever been interested in riding a bike. Um, I think my uncle on my dad's side liked them, but never got his license, never actually owned one. 
But I remember growing up, yeah, any time a motorbike would whiz past you on a, on a road, my mum would just be screaming and saying, no, never in a million years, I will never see you on the back of a bike or riding a bike. And fortunately, it got to a point where like my whole life has been so sheltered, I need to kind of start being my own man. And yeah, watching films, Mission Impossible's Tron, the famous scene going through the bit of the tunnel at the beginning, they all resonated with me and I thought these were awesome. And my girlfriend, Julie, said, well, one day, why don't you just try it? You know, she, her, her dad's a big pet head as well and has bikes coming out of his ears and cars coming out of his ears. So she had known about motorcycling from, from a young age and she had been a pillion from a young age. And so why not give it a go? What's the worst that can happen? You can't do it and we'll figure something else out. So spoke to my brother, him and I, and one of his friends arranged to go to um, a, a learning school in, in Wimbledon because I was living in Battersea at the time. And uh, literally jumped on a 125, first time seeing a bike, no idea what I'm doing, where are the gears, where's the clutch, what's going on here? And uh, it's an up-down motion, so it's, yeah, it, it, it's first, neutral, second, third, fourth. I thought, okay, well, I can't just knock it up like most people, but if I bring my whole leg up from the thigh, like actually moving the knee, this actually works. I can actually, with that strength, pull the gear lever up as to, to which gear it should be. So again, if, if anyone ever sees me riding, you're probably thinking, why is he lifting his leg up rather than just knocking it down and up? That's because I physically still can't do that with, with, with the injuries I've sustained. So I sort of actually have developed my own motion of going through the gears. Um, it does sometimes mean I miss a gear and uh, I'm like, ah, swearing to myself in the helmet. Just embarrass myself in front of everyone, old bugger. <laughs> but um, developed my own way of doing it. And yeah, so again, that came about because I was working down in Horsham at the time for a company down there. So my time was split between working in Horsham and working in Waterloo where they had two offices and the week was split between those two locations. And what was I, 20, 22 at that point, 23 at that point? and still didn't have a driving license, still had been dependent on people picking me up or jumping on public transport. And I just had to think, I, I can't do this any longer because the HR people at the company um, were just saying, you can't rely on others to get you here. Like it's your responsibility to get here. They were fortunately not very understanding at all of the situation. Um, and I thought, well, okay, so if I'm gonna do a 40 mile commute down to work every day, I can't do it in a car can I do it on a bike? So literally, as soon as I got my CVT license, I was able to get that 125, went to the nearest dealership, picked up a Mutt motorcycle because I wanted something that looked cool and had a nice little sound. So I picked up a Mutt Mongrel 125, bit of Steve McQueen with the black tank and the red bench, uh, the, the brown bench seat. And next thing I knew, I was getting up and jumping on a bike and going down the A3 and the A24 down to Horsham <laughs> every morning or three times a week. And it just so happened that I did my CVT in like September or, or something like that. So it was starting to get a bit colder and a bit wetter. So pretty much from day one, I've been thrusting at the deep end and I've been riding in the rain and getting used to the ice and all the different elements that the UK weather throws at you. So uh, yeah, so properly thrust in there. But um, it, it, I think that was one of the things that just made me connect to it so much more because all of a sudden I had my independence back. I could go to the go to the Sainsbury's or Waitrose down the road and pick up some stuff and throw it in a backpack and not need to get public plans. Things that would have taken hours before all of a sudden taking a matter of minutes. Um, so yeah, it, it just connected with me and it was just a huge, huge, huge relief. I, 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 even now, the smile on my face, the feeling inside of me, that warmth, it's just, it changed me. It completely changed me. I feel once in my life I felt independent in something which I was happy with. 
And um, I think that's why motorcycling and the world of motorcycling has just completely taken over and just dominated everything I do now because it was that, it was that something went right for once. Everything would be going wrong and it was finally a bit of golden light and actually, no, this is, this is, this is, this is you. This is you getting through it. And this world is your focus now, isn't it? I mean, if I if I open up Instagram, I can see you're pumping out a lot of content there. Have you managed to make a complete switch over to content creation now? Not fully. Would love to. And absolutely every day I'm aiming to get to that point where content creation is is everything. That you know, that's my bread and butter. That that is how I I make my living. Um, so at the moment, I'm still doing some freelance work here and there for for friends to help them out because by nature by by trade what i've got myself into i didn't do engineering my first job outside of uni was a sales job and i just stuck with it so i did sales and partnerships for as long as i can remember um so to this day i'm still helping out with sales and partnerships for for friends but it's been quite useful because i've been able to use that skill that i picked up to reach out to companies reach out to brands and say look this is who i am i go by the british motorbiker this is my backstory would you be interested in working together in one way shape or form and sort of tying it all together but uh yeah, I, I think I've finally found the thing that I want to do in content creation actually makes me happy because I've been through a fair few jobs. I never really liked, maybe it's just a problem I had that I picked up myself, but I never really enjoyed having a manager. And if I had ideas and wanted to put forward those ideas and they were just dismissed, I really feel deflated. And I just feel in some work environments, I would be like, I really am trying here and I am just not, don't feel like I'm being listened to. So now to sort of be my own boss, to be in control of everything, to if I want to give something a go, I can. If it fails, okay, I've learned from that lesson, I'll, I'll try something else. But I just never felt I had that flow and that positivity when I was in these desk jobs, sitting behind a desk from goodness knows what hours. I remember some jobs, I'd be getting there at sort of half seven and finishing at, at 6.30 or 7.30, doing 12-hour days, just on the phones, just cold calling, cold calling, cold calling. And it never made me happy. Yes, I made some good money from it, but it never connected with me. And that's why I kind of feel like the introduction of bikes into my life, the introduction of the content, the focus of getting out there, seeing the world. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's secretly been my dream all along as, as to what I want to do. And if I can incorporate bits and pieces from my my life beforehand, whether it be the engineering, or whether it be the sales and side, I think they're all just adding to, to who I am as, as a brand and, and help me get further in life. And are you taking those photos yourself or have you managed to rope someone in? Currently, try, well, right now I'm trying to do them myself, but I've been very fortunate that Julie's actually been taking them for me all this time. Uh, so as I mentioned, with her just being a pillion from a young age, she loves being on the back of the bike. She wants to ride herself. She's got her license now, just needs a bike. So I'm very fortunate that sometimes we'll just be riding, even if it's just an evening ride or if we're going on a quick weekend away together on the bike and we'll jump off, take a few shots and then... I've been teaching myself to do all the editing, so that's been a really fun journey. So I'm doing more of it myself. But yeah, Julie now has her own, she started her own business during the pandemic. Um, so she physically does not have the time to be snapping away from me anymore. So it, it, again, it's thrust me at the deep end, but it's nice to know that we're both, we have been supporting each other in our own um, disciplines. And uh, yeah, now I'm just trying to do a bit more myself. Yeah, and I was going to ask, what is it about content creation that you really enjoy? And then kind of on the flip side of that, what is it that you find most challenging? Ah, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's not all sunshine and daisies, is it? But um, I think it's, it, it's being able to actually really show me, this is how I perceive things, this is how I perceive beauty. Uh, so, if, you know, I love to still get involved with cars or even just bikes. It's seeing it from my perspective, the angle that I look at that machine 
that's how I perceive that looking, you know, that shot there. Um, and photography can do that. Of course, all photography, is all art is subjective, but I've my particular way of wanting to showcase that to the world. Um, and it's just a nice way of being able to, to do that. You, you're getting a particular angle, getting a particular setting and location and a particular edit, and just how it can bring that photo and that shot, that machine, so to speak, to life. Um, so that that's a very exciting thing to be working on. It's nice to be in control and just to be like, okay, I'm just going to jump on the bike now and go and do something and I can work my day around things where I need to, composition as I need to. Of course, the daunting factor is the fact that you don't have a an income, a steady income at sort of a monthly basis being paid on like the 27th of every month or something or what it normally is. So that's why I haven't fully made the transition across yet because although I have started to you know, actually make some money from this, which is incredible and I didn't expect that to be happening so soon, it's not enough for Julie and I to actually get out and, and, and buy our own place and, and, and set forward for our careers. So that's why I still help out friends here and there. But I know and I, I can feel it in my heart that this is the right thing to be doing and her doing her fashion, me doing this, we are going to get to where we want to be in life. And then it's just pushing, pushing baby step as long as we're going in the right direction. So where do you see yourself in, in the future? You know, are you the sort of people who have a, a five year plan or, you know, given that we've just come out the midst of a, a pandemic, have you got like a one or a two year plan or is it just more kind of, you know, fly by the seat of your pants? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's still with most bikes, it's still want to be doing things. I mean, I've started recently to launch my own YouTube and getting a feel for it. I haven't really found what I want to do yet, but so far the videos I've been putting out of me just vlogging to myself and talking about it. So we did a, a tour of Ducati. That was one of the collaborations I arranged. And I went to the southwest coast of England and went around. That was a beautiful uh, nine day tour. So I've been slowly releasing that information and then those those stories and videos. And it's nice to have documenting it. But yeah, I, I mean, I would still very much like to be involved with motorbikes. I'd like to be maybe involved with cars. It'd be incredible if I actually had my own real persona as the British motorbiker and that became more publicly known and publicly aware of people that's like British motorbikes got a new show or he's actually got a whole YouTube thing who knows how far I can go but I'd absolutely love to everyone grows up and sees those three idiots on top gear having them having the time of their life I love love them to bits love them to bits and everyone sort of secretly wants to be doing that so who knows maybe working with other people and, and, and doing stuff together but not just on cars or on bikes but just a bit of everything encompassing all but um, it really is the world's my oyster and that's the beauty of it at the moment. I, I can go anywhere with this and what works, works. What doesn't work, doesn't work. So I feel very, very privileged to be able to, to, be, able to be doing this as sort of my part time right now. And so where can people find you if they want to follow along with your journey? So Instagram's the main one that I've been pushing for, well, since the pandemic started, really. That, that's, that was my output from my stressful days. I just always, always jump on the bike, clear my head, start taking some photos and lo and behold, the British motorbike was born. So... Instagram's the main one, the British Most Biker. As I mentioned, YouTube is something I'm trying to move into, which again is the British Most Biker, uh, very original. And then I've got my website and that's where I'm also trying to bring other platforms in and other bits of it. I'm hoping to launch a store, but I live in Surrey now. So who knows if you ever want to go to Newlands Corner, actually meet face to face. I'm always up for actually a ride and meeting with people and actually be able to put a face to a name. Um, there are people on Instagram who have known for, since the beginning of the pandemic, I've only just met up with in person and it was so nice to actually be able to speak to these people in person actually see the bike for real that I've been admiring for years on end 
So that's the other thing. If people want to meet up and actually go for a ride, I'm happy to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely be taking you up on that. But listen, Connor, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you and and getting an idea of everything that you've been through. And I'm genuinely, I'm so excited to see where you go in the future. Uh, and I'll look forward to catching up again for sure. Well, it means a lot. Thank you so much. So that was Conor O'Donnell, otherwise known as the British motorbiker. And it's clear that he's dealt with and, and continues to deal with adversity. But it's also really obvious how positive he is and how building a personal brand has started to open up a really interesting future for him. For me, a huge part of Barnfield is about creating a community and connecting people. So do reach out to Connor. And if you have a similar story or if you've been inspired by his, just let him know. You know creating content can feel a lot like a one-way conversation. So it's always a pleasure to hear from people. And in the meantime, if there's anyone you think I should be speaking to, just please do let me know. You can reach me on Instagram at Barnfield Customs or drop me a line on mark at barnfieldcustoms.com. And so, look, take care, and I'll look forward to catching you on the next one.